Welcome to We're Here, We're Queer, and We Hate Everything, our new podcast. This episode is called We Hate the Hero, and we're here to talk about queer coding in villains and our favorite queer uh, movie and TV villains and everything to do with queer stuff, villainy, and heroes suck. Danny? Heroes do suck. Hi, I'm Danny, and my pronouns are any and all of them. Um, with a slight preference towards any and all of them. <laughs> um, hi, I'm Tess. Uh, my pronouns are also any of them I'm fine with. Uh, if that's confusing to you, you can just go with they, them. Yeah, I absolutely always hate the hero and um, have always identified with the villains. And in discussing this with Tess, um, you know, we kind of fell down this rabbit hole of like queer coded villains and initially wanted to just talk about different villains we love and realize that they're all pretty much the gay characters in movies. <laughs> so kind of wanted to dive into the context of what queer coding is and then talk about some of our favorite queer coded villains of film and television past and present. Yeah, so I think it's pretty common in the queer a sphere um, that people are really into the villains more than the heroes. You hear this all the time in, in queer circles and stuff like that. I think a lot of it is because of queer coding of villains and the fact that queer people feel like society's outcasts and kind of identify with these darker, misunderstood or maligned characters. Yeah, I can't help but wonder if it almost seemed intentional on Disney's part because the villain always has the best show-stopping number mm -hmm. in, like, their fabulous fortress with, you know, their flowing capes. Mm -hmm. It really just, mm -hmm. it speaks to you. Absolutely. <laughs> so when we talk about coding, what are we talking about? Coding is any kind of symbolic or subtextual meaning that's added to a piece of media, whether it's a TV show, movie, play, or real life actually, you know, we're real life coded. I'm pretty queer coded generally in my real life and that's an intentional choice that I make. I didn't always present this way, right? Uh, okay, to a lesser or greater extent, in a less intentional way previously and a more intentional way now. So when we talk about uh, media, film, uh, TV or, or what have you, you have the explicit meaning of the text that set things that are sort of explicitly stated that a character, you can explicitly state that a character is gay or that a character has this job or that a character is angry or whatever the case may be. And then you have the implicit kind of subtextual coding, which is sort of the intersection of social interpretation of that thing as well as the art itself, right? So it's, it's kind of a, a dialectic between the media and the culture. It's kind of created by culture because it has to exist for people to interpret it that way. And it's also in a way created by media because all of those types of archetypes and codes are reinforced and taken from media as well. So it's one of those classic things where it's like art imitates life, imitates art, imitates life, and it kind of perpetuates itself, right? And it's not necessarily anything to do with, with being queer. Uh, like if you think, if you want to think of it like the sign, the explicit thing would be saying, oh, this is the color red. So the color red is the explicit signal that you have in the medium. And then the code part of that is that a color, a character that wears a lot of the color red, red dresses or whatever, you might say that character is a very seductive character or passionate because that's the code, the color red that our society kind of gives to it. You know, as you're saying this, I can't help but wonder, you know, if we've got the chicken or the egg situation here, 
mm-hmm. um, or how much has queer culture been influenced by villains specifically. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's where the adaptation came from. That's where every gay man's desire to wear capes has come from. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's definitely a dialogue, a conversation between those two things where gay people, queer people, intentionally take back those codes that were coded into these subtextually queer characters and intentionally take them back and use them as part of their representation. Yeah, that's a super interesting point as well. Anyway, so, so like we were saying, coding can, can be done intentionally or unintentionally, right? So a, a director can, can come in and say, oh, I want to represent, I want this character to be kind of gay. So I'm going to make him kind of effeminate and have him wear clothes that come off as gay and have him speak in a certain way. Or a director can come in and say, oh, what do I think of when I think of a villain? And the image that can pop into the director's head could be, a kind of a gay looking character because of the history of the representation mm-hmm. of villains in that way. So it can be that it's an intentional choice. And of course, it's not always negative either, right? You can have you can have queer coding of non-villain characters and you can have all kinds of coding of all kinds of characters that's not necessarily negative. In fact, it's a basically neutral thing at its base. It's just the idea of having a subtext to your characters. And it can be, like I said, intentional or unintentional. And a lot of times coding that starts out kind of intentional becomes unintentional as the same archetypes are reproduced without having the same thought process behind them. And that's something that's happened a lot with queer coded characters. And we'll talk about that in a sec. (laughs) Spoilers. So specifically when we're talking about queer coding, something that's kind of important and interesting to think about, or something that I think about all the time anyway, because it's kind of the intersection of two of my big interests, is the fact that the whole idea of psychoanalysis and psychology and Freudian psychoanalysis specifically came up at the same time as film did. So really about the same time that film was starting to get started with the Lumiere brothers and all that sort of thing, psychoanalysis and psychology was starting to become a thing with Freud and and um, and uh, Charcot and all, and all these founders of psychology. And the two are kind of inextricably intertwined from the get-go. And as psychology and psychoanalysis and pop psychoanalysis and sort of popular interpretations of psychoanalysis got bigger and bigger, they became more and more represented in film. So the idea of having, the Freudian idea of having a subconscious that you're repressing and these kind of subconscious desires, especially sexual desires that you're repressing and that's where all your evilness comes from is these repressed sexual desires and often a messed up relationship with your mother and uh, your your mother's kind of twisted you into this repressed sexual creature um, and that's what's made you gay is all kind of comes from from Freud. All, obviously, all of these things have been very much debunked or are no longer uh, supported by science or were never supported by science. But the, but I mean, I don't know. Is, As a gay man with a fucked up relationship with his mother, it like <laughs> still very much resonates to me. And uh, you know, I won't speak on behalf of your relationship with your parents, but. <laughs> Right, but Speaking of queer-coded villains, yeah, uh, Tessa's queer-coded. parents are... <laughs> well, I like to think of myself as a queer-coded villain. I mean, that's like something we should all aim for. Yeah, it's my goal in life, really. Um, so, uh, so, so those things are kind of intertwined in a lot of ways. And after World War II, when psychoanalysis and like pop psychology started becoming a really huge thing in the United States a lot of filmmakers incorporated these themes into their films and the idea of making uh, villains, the core of the villain is this repressed sexual, a lot of times gay sexuality that comes a lot of times from the mother. You see this so clearly in so many films of 
the 40s, 50s, when Hollywood was becoming really big, and of course, the 60s as well. And one of the great, huge examples of this is, of course, Alfred Hitchcock, who sort of founded so many of the tropes and archetypes of horror and villainy and suspense. And Hitchcock was 100% super, super influenced by Freudian psychoanalysis. It's not, it's not, this isn't my interpretation. It's not even a stretch. It's not a stretch. It's explicit in the text. I think in the beginning of Spellbound, the text, literally the the opening title of the film, which was uh, 1948, is like, our story deals with psychoanalysis. You know, it's not, I'm not, I'm not reading anything into it here. This is, this, this is in the film, right? And in that film, there's a whole dream sequence that was storyboarded and designed by Salvador Dali, who is a surrealist painter who is super, super into the idea of the, the subconscious and Freudian psychoanalysis and all of that stuff. So this isn't a stretch. This, this is definitely there. And so many of Hitchcock's villains have these aspects of the Freudian psychoanalytical repressed sexual villain and he cast a lot of the time closeted gay actors in villain roles he really steered into this intentionally and of course the iconic example of this is Norman Bates from the 1960 film Psycho who was played by Anthony Perkins who was an at the time closeted because you had to be closeted gay man wait Um, really yeah yeah he was how did I not know this you didn't know this I spent hours researching closeted gay celebrities. Yes. And I really, like... Anthony Perkins was a hardcore gay. Like, you know, some of of those closeted celebrities, people are like, oh, well, they were rumors, but we never know. But Anthony Perkins, people are like, yeah, 100%. He was gay. AF. Oh, God. Now I want to find out if he fucked Rock Hudson. Yeah, probably. So, so yeah, so Norman Bates was played by, by Anthony Perkins, and there's this whole mother thing, and the, you know, he dresses up as his mother, all of the, all of the tropes of the evil trans slash gay, of course, it's all mashed together in these, in these type of, uh, in these types of villain stories, all, you know, gender, contravening gender roles and, and sort of sexuality is always matched, matched together in this way. And, and that kind of iconic uh, villain of Norman Bates has been super, super influential down the line. So, uh, and of course there are many other examples of this in Hitchcock and a lot of other films of the era. Rope, which was um, a 1948 film by Hitchcock, which is based on the Leopold and Loeb murders. Those two characters, Brandon and Philip in the film, are super, super queer-coded, super gay-coded. They're, you know, they're these two sort of foppish Ivy League, uh, too smart for you guys who are, who are plotting this murder together, and they have this sort of weird homoerotic relationship with their teacher who's played by um, Jimmy Stewart. So yeah, so that's super present in all of Hitchcock's films, which were incredibly influential. I mean, yeah, and I think, you know, probably the gayest thing he ever did was cast Doris Day and The Man Who Knew Too Much. That was like <laughs> a gift. Uh, yes, that was let's, a gift. Let's write a suspense movie evolving around a song about being a little girl. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, and then in the 60s as well, you have, you have the, the Bond films, which are sort of the quintessential queer-coded villain, where the villain, well, and this is also part of the whole queer coding thing is that a lot of the times, and this goes back, you know, before psychoanalysis, before all of that, back to fairy tales and back to Disney, where if you have your hero, your hero has to exemplify 
virtue and virtue a lot of times is written or read as being conforming to the gender roles and the roles that you're supposed to be playing in society. So a lot of these sort of fairy tale based stories, the the hero exemplifies all the virtues of their gender, right? The princesses are all really sweet and they clean and they they're they're sort of passive and they are waiting for for a man to come save them and the hero the heroes are always active and proud and filled with honor and all of that. So the the villain kind of has to go in opposition of that, right? So yeah. the villain contravenes those roles. And that's a lot of times why the villain ends up also being queer-coded. And that's always the case with James Bond because the villains are often set against Bond to... Bond exemplifies this manliness and this, this sort of rapacious masculinity and violence. And then the villains are, are of course, also violent, but are, but are sort of sort of precious and sort of overly intellectual and all these things that are associated as well with queerness. And you see that with Dr. No. I'm going to, full disclosure here, I like the James Bond series way more than any human should. <laughs> um, like, have seen all of them at least a million times, have very strong opinions on Roger Moore that we'll <laughs> save for another episode. But it's interesting... You know, I've always what what I've always loved about the James Bond series is how you can kind of look at it as to how society has progressed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in like a lot of ways, so many of like the modern James Bond films are still back ass words mm-hmm. um, regarding like their depictions of women and how like even though now they're portrayed as like actually being competent and capable women, they're all still completely useless to the charms of, yeah. And And like, I remember in like one of the more recent ones, James Bond just walks into a woman in a shower and has sex with her. Oh my God, that was the worst scene ever. Um, And you know, however they continue this series, um, there's a part of me that wishes they wouldn't and there's a part of me that very much wants to see Gillian Anderson play James Bond. Oh my God, that would be amazing. But um, Talk about queer coding, like everything Jillian Anderson has ever done. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you, like we said, queer coding, Jillian Anderson was going to come up. Um, <laughs> but we got off track. Um, you know, if you look at Javier Bardem's James Bond villain, who was like, it wasn't even implied that he was gay. Like, it was very much like, oh, he's a gay character, but they're still doing the like, you know, he's kind of effeminate. Weird, creepy, effeminate. Yeah, and so that's a, that's kind a great... Kind of rapey. That, that's a great... Yeah, kind of rapey, as always. All the gays are rapists. That's a classic theme. So that's a really interesting uh, version or, or example of where initially the queer coding came from this kind of social idea that queers are weird and gross and, and villainous and dangerous. Mm-hmm. And then, and that's in the, the 1960s and 70s and sort of the early run of James Bond movies. And then you have a modern film where you would think, if somebody's thinking about the coding and thinking about what they're kind of putting into those characters, there would be some thought process behind how you're representing the character, but there isn't really that kind of reflection. And it's more just like, oh, this is what a Bond villain is. I want to make it like a classic Bond villain. And what that ends up meaning is that they come off, as, is that they make this really creepy, rapacious gay villain, you know? Um, so yeah, that's kind of also, an example of the coding being intentional to unintentional. I also, you know, I can't help but wonder, you know, and I don't want to linger on James Bond for too long, but also we'll linger on it forever. If it also has to do with the actors portraying it, 
most recently, Remy Malek is playing the villain in the next James Bond movie. And he was very adamant that as a Middle Eastern man, he not be portrayed as the traditional terrorist type of applying more stigma to Middle Eastern men. And he went in very conscious that that was part of his terms. Because, you know, we've got straight actor after straight actor playing queer people. They're not approaching these things with the same sensitivity. Right, or the same... Or like, yeah, even like the same experience. Right, the same idea at all that anything is anything other than... Um, you know, just a kind of regurgitation of previous codes, you know? Uh, so yeah, that's definitely having not just actors, but also the directors and the writers who are coming from that not very reflective place definitely plays into that for sure. So yeah, so so not to linger too long on James Bond, but I think that's also another example of a really influential series that played into that, that queer coding trope for villains. Another thing I wanted to mention is the sort of explicit systemic enforcement of this, right? So what I'm talking about, of course, is the Hayes Code, also called the Motion Picture Production Code, which was enacted in 1934, and that was in the United States to control representations of sinful or or bad behaviors on film and to make sure that film was sending a, a moral image that wasn't going to corrupt the youth and everything. And if you look at films that came out previously to 1934, there are lots of really interesting themes that are explored, very active women characters, abortion, gay stuff, all kinds of stuff. May and then, West. Yeah, May West, exactly. Um, and 1934, the Hayes Code was passed, and then um, you have this body enforcing the Hayes Code, saying what you can and can't show on film, and a lot of the enforcement was things like you cannot show explicitly gay characters, you can't show a relationship between a black person and a white person, you couldn't show white slavery. Of course, only white slavery is considered sinful in this context. You know, this kind of moral policing of what could be showed explicitly on film. And as time went on, the, the Hayes Code was loosened a little bit in the 40s and 50s to say, oh yeah, you can show gay characters, um, but they can only be portrayed as villains or they, or they can be punished for their homosexuality within the scope of the film, right? This is explicit. To a certain extent, it's, it's sort of reproduced by society in, a, in an unconscious way, but this, this is an explicit conscious system that was put in place to enforce this idea that gays should be punished on screen if they're shown, or they should be shown as really evil villains, right? And then there is a body that's administering the Hayes Code that's watching these films and saying, oh no, you can't release this film unless you show this gay as being more evil. So there's the kind of social side to it, and then there's also the the explicit systemic side of it. So that's kind of the outlines of what I wanted to say about queer coding. It wasn't entirely obvious. Tess obviously did all of the homework here and <laughs> I'm just copying her work, looking at her notes. <laughs> well, which, I like, just basically spent all of my time thinking and talking about uh, movies, media, queer things, and psychology. So, uh, you know, so I had a foundation to leap off of. It's fine. When we do an episode about porn, I will rub circles <laughs> around you. Um, so that's basically the kind of background that I wanted to talk about uh, with queer coding. And then we can dive into some of our favorite things, uh, favorite queer coded villains and other queer coding in films that we love. I mean, yeah, once I, again, I'll, we're using the word villains here, like... Pretty loosely, yeah. Yeah, because I'm going to call most most of these the heroes of their story <laughs> and, and we could you know get into this was was this villain's motivation bad but I often especially in Disney look at them and I'm like 
No, that sixteen-year-old girl's kind of an idiot. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I can I can hear already that you're talking about Ursula, and obviously, hashtag Ursula was robbed. If you look into the subtext of that story, clearly Triton just kicked her out for no reason and decided he should be the king of the because she was a boss bitch and he was intimidated by her because he was more powerful than her. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, like, why is ambition always like a bad thing? Like, why is being yeah, for power women hungry? Characters are female, female coded characters because Ursula. We can talk about Ursula now if yes, we want to. Finally, Ursula. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, just in terms of like design, like we'll start there. Mm-hmm. You know, she. It's always interesting to look at what actors inspire Disney characters. Like mm-hmm. Aladdin was based on Tom Cruise, and Belle was based on Katherine Hepburn. But for Ursula, they actually chose Divine mm-hmm. as the, the character model, which we're not even, like, pretending to not be queer-coded. It's like, oh, here's, of the time, the most famous drag queen. Right. So Divine was a super famous drag queen of the era who was John Waters' muse, and in all of John Waters' films, uh, if you're not familiar with them, they're, you know, absolutely super ultra-subversive for the era, gay and divine um you know this big old drag queen was was john waters muse and that's who ursula's character design was based off of so that comes back to what you were saying before danny that sometimes it seems like some of the creators and certainly there's lots of queer people behind the scenes even in these super hetero productions and sometimes it seems like the creators are just kind of having fun with these villain tropes so sometimes there's there's a certain love behind it or there's a certain other level behind it that that the villains end up coming off much yeah, much more interesting than than the heroes that that are these kind of flat hetero archetypes. Yeah, because I mean, you also like have to think, you know, these the people creating this content. They were working in Hollywood, which has always been a much more progressive. Not lately, but uh, you know, <laughs> has typically been a lot more progressive than other areas of the country. So th- this was kind of perhaps their way of like exposing people to like. Let's just dip our toes in the, the mm. world of, you know, divine. But, but you can certainly say that, that they were having fun with it, right? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Ursula. What else about Ursula? Love um, her. Yeah. I great mean, karaoke like, song. Great. But one of my go-to karaoke songs, uh, <laughs> if I was a little drunker, I would probably try and do the laugh. Maybe we'll end on that. Huh? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> We'll try to get it up before the end. Yeah, you know, like like I was saying earlier, once again, here's the villain. Let's give them the absolute best song in the movie, (laughs) which is the case of every Disney movie. And uh, I'm going to use this to jump ahead a little bit to a certain character who is almost at this point undeniably gay. Mm-hmm. but was originally written as the villain of their movie. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is Elsa. Yes. So this is a great case of the villain coding being twisted and used in a way that's actually really amazing and positive and great, although it would be great if she was explicitly gay. But uh, but definitely she's this villain. It's kind of a classic Disney trope that she's going to be this queer-coded villain. And then someone in the process of making that film was like, hey, F that. Um, let's make her really super sympathetic and one of the heroes of the film. Actually, from my understanding, the reason behind that was because the producers were so in love with Let It Go mm-hmm. 
that they're like, they can't be the villain anymore. Like, kids are going to lose their mind over this song, which, <laughs> congratulations, they did. Yeah. And they had them, like, rework the movie to make her the hero. Oh, really? Um, it happened in mid-production? or Yeah, it happened mid-production. I mean, the, like... The adaptation of uh, I'm forgetting the exact name of the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale the had been Snow like Snow Queen. Hmm? Yeah, it's no. the Snow Queen. That's what I thought. I was thinking the Ice Queen. It had been in production for many, many years with count. You know, like, and I'm sure all of these go through this type of like, you know, let's rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. Uh, but once once it was like you know moving along in production and they recorded Let It Go they had to, like, reorganize the entire movie. Um, Because they're like, no, a villain can't have that good of a song. Like, it's too (laughs) powerful. That's amazing. I love it. And, and yeah, that's exactly kind of calls back to what we were talking about earlier, which is, like, if you just take these codes that are kind of passed down from earlier films and kind of uncritically throw them into your film, you just end up with more shitty queer coding. Well, great to a certain extent, but it's definitely a negative portrayal of, queerness in film and kind of uncomfortable in this era. But if you take these kind of code, this coding that's passed down from previous films and from, you know, the, the, the source material and so on and take a critical eye at it and say, how can I twist this a little bit and make it, make it have a slightly different coding underlying subtext can be really awesome. And obviously I think everybody has a little bit of frozen fatigue nowadays, but I still super love it. So the song Into the Unknown is banned in my apartment right now um, (laughs) by my partner. Oh my God, I love Into the Unknown. And I had forgotten it existed and we were watching like something on Hulu the other day and an advertisement (laughs) for Into the Unknown for, for, for Disney Plus came on and that song was playing and it's so back in my head. Oh my and God. Like, oh yeah, so if anybody bothers hasn't me seen about it yet, Elsa, Yeah, go ahead. Um, is, you know, kind of like the way they, they teased and dragged it out as to whether or not when Frozen 2 came out, um, they were going to make her gay. Because like, it was kind of like all, all eyes on all sides of the aisle mm-hmm. were like, are they, like, you know, it's like you've got like the million moms mm-hmm. who don't want, I mean, I'm pretty sure they hate that movie to begin with because like, it's 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 undeniable that she's gay. Like I'm not like I'm not even well, from a gay perspective. It is, but she is not. Uh, you know, I'm I'm my, you know I'm here to throw the the dikey wrench in the works and be like, it's not real representation. She's not yes. explicitly gay. I'm not. Yeah, um, I'm not saying like, oh, this is our gay hero that we've been waiting for. This well, it is kind of our gay hero we've been waiting for, but Disney could do better. Let's Disney could do better. Disney can always do better. They actually, you know, I gonna sidetrack for a minute to talk about LeFou in mm-hmm. the most recent Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Um, oh my god, what a boondoggle that was. So so here's my question though, you know if you look at like the history of like actual gay representation in pop culture, it kind of always starts with these like flamboyant over the top characters and then like slowly evolves i get that we want to immediately jump to like a nuanced complex not stereotypical we want gay elsa who like has like some you know homosexual tendencies but isn't like wearing a flannel gown and (laughs) you know looking you know on a quest for the perfect uh tool belt (laughs) 
This is why I don't write lesbian characters. <laughs> <laughs> but was it still progress that we got an actual gay character? Okay, a- okay, okay. Can I can I interrupt you? Right? Yeah, I'm I'm ask. I'm opening a dialogue here. <laughs> okay. Well, Disney. So I guess went on record saying LeFou is a gay character now. Um, but first of all, uh, hello, welcome to the universe. Every Disney villain ever has been queer coded, if not explicitly gay. So thank you. It's actually not progress at all. Secondly, secondly, do you watch the live action uh, Beauty and the Beast remake? Yes, and I have to say the most homophobic thing about it was wasting Audra McDonald in a two-line dresser role. <laughs> yes, that was blatantly uh, homophobic. The, the movie—I mean, I'm not going to get into the fact that the movie was utter garbage, but I'll just—I'll just leave that there for people to argue about. But uh, I'll, uh, there is no explicit gayness to LeFou's character. That does not exist in the film. In one moment, he dances for a, mo- a second or five seconds with, a, with another man in a context where everybody's kind of running around dancing with each other. There is no explicit gayness in the, in the text of the film. Disney said he was gay, I guess, out of text, but that doesn't happen in the movie. Um, so I think, like, and... I mean, I took it as explicitly he was gay because, and let's just ignore the problematicness of this component of the story, but the particular man he was dancing with was the same man who was not obsessed when the Audra McDonald played wardrobe, dressed him up as a woman. Uh, oh, okay. To enjoy it. Oh my God, um, you're making me feel ill. <laughs> listen, I'm not defending this. I just, you know, so they... Like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge that this guy was gay. Right, um, but, and th- then, th- but there you go. It's wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There's still no explicit gayness in the movie, right? In the text. Yeah. So, they're upco- so they do have an upcoming movie, uh, The Jungle Cruise. And that is actually, they've, they've gone out and said, this, will, this movie will have a gay character and it will be ig- acknowledged and addressed in the movie. Well, we shall see. Uh, I'm, I'm I can't so wait curious for him to be see dressed that. up in a dress and not be upset about it. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, we could definitely talk for a moment that uh, they they cast a straight actor oh, uh, in this role, and I it was one of those moments where I was genuinely surprised to find out that this person was straight. <laughs> uh, it's Jack Whitehall. Oh my God, Jack Whitehall straight. Yeah, no, it's like, I honestly think Disney was like, yeah, we're casting a gay person. And then it was like, <laughs> whoops. Oh, no, whoops. I didn't know Jack Whitehall was straight. I always assumed he was gay. Yeah, like, if anything, I, I would really like him to come out publicly <laughs> as straight because <laughs> I'm not, like, reinforcing some negative stereotypes here or some gay stereotypes here, but with Jack Whitehall, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> um... I had absolutely no idea he was straight. No, I didn't um, realize he was straight either. Oh my goodness. So it's like, yay for progress, but also like, there's another, you know. Straight person playing a Straight person gay playing character. a gay person. Well, but, we'll I mean, see. with Beauty and the Beast, we at least got a gay man playing Gaston, so, so that made me happy. Luke Evans? Yeah, and he actually, I read an article, an interview with him once where he actually struggled to come out because they were pushing him as, you know, this macho action star. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he had come out kept getting removed from his Wikipedia page. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. Hmm. 
Um, yeah, you know, life is so easy for gay people now, Danny. There are no more problems. Um, anyway, anyway, we're going to get back on track. We're, yeah. we're getting distracted a little bit. But I will say, um, when we were talking about Into the Unknown, if anybody hasn't seen Frozen 2, um, it's delightful and wonderful. I loved it. And Elsa is even gayer in Frozen 2. Even gayer. Um, but still not explicitly gay, but I mean, it's really right on the surface. And like, she has spoilers, unless I'm completely forgetting, because I was like just singing Into the Unknown the entire time <laughs> I watched that movie. Like, once that number came on, the movie was over for me. But didn't she like make a friend at the end? Uh, yeah, so she has the little, That she lived like, in the wilderness with? Am I remembering has, this correct? Okay, spoilers, but she, they go into the forest or whatever, and she meets this, you know, forest woman who is kind <laughs> of like, at some point, like, well, they have like one or two conversations, so we're definitely reading into it, but, but at the end when she decides to, spoiler alert, stay in the forest, it's because the woman's like, you know you belong here. Elsa, and she's like, <laughs> yes, you know. <laughs> I mean, this could be the elusive, like, you know, straight, reclusive woman who lives in a forest. <laughs> but I would have loved to see that character, um, that woman, be like riding with her on the horse at the end. Anyway, whatever. The is point there is going to be a Frozen Three because, like, they have the chance to show Elsa living in the woods with like their twenty adopted rescue dogs. <laughs> Um, but I, I will say the rest. There, there is a lot of hetero stuff in the rest of the movie. There's the whole marriage subplot with with um, with uh, what's his face, uh, Sven, Sven, or is Sven the the reindeer, Hans? Um, I, no, I, I don't pay a lot of attention was, to Sven. Was uh, was it Anders? Aunt Anders is definitely not right. Anyway, there is a whole like marriage subplot, but it's so ridiculously over the top that it just seems like it's mocking heterosexuality from my perspective um I his, mean, like heterosexuality his, like, mocks forest, itself so. that's true that's true his his song in the forest though his like overly dramatic forest song where he's like upset about being left behind or whatever was hilarious I was oh saying. it's Kristoff also so Christoph. like I'm just gonna say it like you know it was Jonathan Groff any song he has is gonna be super dramatic I was cackling in the theater filled with children I, uh, yeah, I didn't see it in theaters because I could not find anyone to go see it with me. Oh my god, why don't you just come up here? This was like, this. if there was ever a moment I wanted kids, it's anytime a Disney movie comes out. <laughs> um, if there was ever a moment I didn't want kids, it's literally any other moment of my life. <laughs> okay, so are we done with Disney? Because I think we spent too much yeah, time. Yeah, no, we can talk about, I mean, like, it's... I can quickly yeah. mention Scar my favorite villain when I was a kid and Jafar, who I also loved, who, who followed the same archetype of being like kind of effeminate to contrast with the masculine hero and everything. Um, and, uh, and, and Maleficent, of course, who's an icon of, of queer culture with her, you know, dramatic, uh, entitled uh, uh, sort of... You didn't invite me to a party, so I'm going to kill your daughter. Like, <laughs> I, I get that though. I like, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> so um so yeah so disney we could do a whole episode on disney's villains and everything um but some another movie i want to talk about because i super super loved it and i was super expecting to hate it because i hate basically every other movie in the category and you'll know what i'm talking about when i say it 
Um, it was Birds of Prey, a.k.a. The Emancipation of One Harley Quinn movie, a.k.a. the worst titled movie in the history of the world, um, which I went in expecting to hate it because DC movies have by and large been total garbage, um, up to including Wonder Woman, and I will fight anyone who tries to tell me Wonder Woman was a good movie. Wonder Woman was an adequate movie. Okay, okay. Well, this is a discussion for another time. <laughs> but uh, I went in expecting to not like it, also have super Marvel fatigue by now and super superhero fatigue, um, as I think everyone does. But I loved Birds of Prey. I mean, it's not a good movie in the sense that it's like a good movie, you know, in the in the sort of um, academic sense of a good movie. But it knows exactly what it is. It's super campy. It's super ridiculous. And it is super, super, super queer, both explicitly and implicitly. Um, the villain and his henchmen are extremely queer-coded. Black Mask, who's played by Ewan McGregor, is ridiculously queer-coded, and he just is hamming it up. Black really, Mask really is actually, you know, one of my requirements on my grinder profile. So. <laughs> um, so he hams it up, and he's chewing the scenery, and he's loving every minute of it, and I loved every minute of it. But then, it's sort of, a, like I'm saying, it's a twist on the idea of queer-coding the villain, where basically every single other character, including every hero, is also queer-coded. Harley so, Quinn is, is explicitly bisexual in the film. Was she explicitly bisexual in the film? Yeah, um, in the film, in the beginning, in the intro part, they, they like, where she's talking about her backstory or whatever, she talks about being in a relationship with a woman. Okay, I might have missed that. Um, but, you know, one thing I can't help but wonder, you know, is all... I couldn't help but wonder. Um, <laughs> the thing about this movie is that it's villains versus villains. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, are these really queer-coded heroes, or are they just... Sure, they're still kind of villains, um, so I guess that's that's partially why there's a little bit more latitude. But they are the heroes of the film. You're meant to be sympathetic towards them. They're they're the kind of good guys in our eyes, even if they're still kind of villains in the DC universe. Black Canary is is pretty queer coded. Renee Montoya is explicitly a lesbian in the film, and she's super badass. Uh, Huntress, super queer-coded as fuck. Uh, loved her. She was amazing. Um, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Um, so, yeah, so basically just everybody in, in the movie is, is presented as super queer. And, it's and or just, just was queer. And or just was explicitly queer. And, you know, it's all kinds of all kinds of delicious. I loved it. It's super over-the-top campy. It's super satirical, kind of self-conscious. I, I think that it really got a bad rap, partially because it has a terrible title, uh, also because everybody's tired of shitty DC movies coming out. Yeah, I, you know, the scene that always stands out to me in that movie is, too, one, like, the hair tie scene, just, like, mm -hmm. you know, a woman wrote that. It was something that every action movie ever needed with a woman with long, beautiful, flowing hair that she never ties up while fighting. Uh, but for me, it was really the, you know, and this has nothing to do with what we've been talking about, but the egg sandwich scene. Oh, my God. The egg sandwich um, plot is yeah, amazing. And it's just I, perfect, you know? I think, you know, I've lived in a bunch of places all over the country, and the egg sandwich magic really only exists in New York City, in the New York metro area. <laughs> um, I've learned if you live elsewhere, 
and you're like, I want a breakfast sandwich. They're like, what's that? <laughs> I actually have never explicitly thought about this, but now that you mention it, yes, when I go back home and it's one of the things that I'm like, oh my God, I can just go to the corner store and order a breakfast sandwich and they will have it, one, and two, they'll know exactly what I mean, and three, it'll be a delicious, greasy bomb of grease. Yeah, that was cooked on the grill that has never been, like, everything about that was like, Yes, I get that. And I think that, like, the fact that so much of the movie revolves around a breakfast sandwich, <laughs> um, you know, I think it might have just been lost on people because they, you know, have never experienced true fucking joy <laughs> that um, is a breakfast, a bacon, egg, and cheese on a, on a Kaiser roll. It is fucking bliss. Um, I am super hungover. I ordered one today. <laughs> Postmates. I spent more on delivery fees than the actual sandwich. <laughs> I think the film a, got a bad rep because people don't understand breakfast sandwiches properly. <laughs> just oh, really not out there. <laughs> but, uh, but no, it's one, of the, it's one of those things that there are these little you know, little subplots and little callbacks that are really just perfectly done and it's not a good film but it's a great fun movie and you know the structure is really great and the characters are all played to the to the nines and it's uh it's beautiful and you should go watch it i yeah i'm actually just realizing that was the last movie i saw in theaters before covid Mm. and now i'm like is that gonna be like the last movie i ever see in a movie theater (laughs) not because like oh i'm afraid i'm gonna die but like what's gonna happen to movie i mean like let's not go down that rabbit hole but like there's a good chance that uh, Birds of Prey might have been the last movie I saw in a theater. So <laughs> The last movie ever to be in a theater. Uh, okay, so moving on. Oh, my favorite subject in the world, uh, <laughs> the Dark Lord himself, <laughs> Satan, um, Ave Satanas. Um, <laughs> yeah, Satan is... I don't know how to... I'm just going to say it. I have never not wanted to fuck a portrayal of Satan. <laughs> Um, this is more about you than it does about film, but okay. <laughs> does it though? Because like, let's look at some examples. Okay. South Park. Mm-hmm. Satan was fucking giant and jacked and super and, gay and super and like yeah, not even like coded as gay. Like was fucking Saddam Hussein <laughs> and other examples. Uh, for those who have are still stomaching the chilling adventures of Sabrina. Mm-hmm. Um, this, I, I won't even go into how we got down this hole because, you know, um, nothing in that show makes sense, but Satan spent, uh, an ent- basically half a season wrestling a teenage boy shirtless. Mm-hmm. Um, I could not get through, I got through three episodes and I was like, I'm done with this. Oh yeah. I no, had high I, hopes, but it did not uh, pan out. No, it's, it's bad. Um, like... <laughs> It's, and I 100% blame the showrunners because they punted Riverdale in the exact same way, which was just supposed to be hot teenagers boning. Um, And now it's a show about like gang wars and white suburbia. Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, once again, fulfilling all of my sexual fantasies was like, here's this twink wrestling shirtless with like a 40 year old muscular dude. (laughs) It was a lot to handle. And then if we want to, like, dive into where this came from, uh, Powerpuff Girls. Well, that's not where it comes from, but Powerpuff Girls is definitely a good Oh, I meant cool. where my sexual, where, like, <laughs> where my sexual... So where your desires come from. from. You know, like, the first introduction of, like... Because I went to Catholic school growing up, so, you know, like, mm. I was trained to fear the devil and... <laughs> 
I also was told that W is a vowel, but <laughs> uh, the example they used was owl. Uh, <laughs> but yes, the first not like brimstone and fire portrayal of the devil I remember seeing was him from Powerpuff Girls who, good God, good God, they were not even pretending anything. No, I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly intentional in Powerpuff Girls, right? And I feel like they have a lot of gender bending-y kind of stuff in Powerpuff Girls. Um, in like know, the, the Cartoon Network universe in general. Yeah, yeah. And, and in Powerpuff Girls, it was clearly like sort of satirical, intentional, over the top with him, who is this devil character who wears heels and a boa and is in a skirt and uh, has this really effeminate voice that he does all the time. Uh, and that was clearly intentional. And the Powerpuff Girls themselves kind of were these kind of like blend of traditional feminine and traditional masculine characteristics. And, you know, the father would be always seen at home cleaning and cooking and stuff. So, you know, I think it was very intentional in that show. And it was lovely. And him is still really great. Yeah. You can't talk about queer-coded villains without talking about the queen of playing them <laughs> uh, in modern eras, who's Tilda Swinton. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> who, I mean, what, what, what can we say about Tilda Swinton that has not been said by gay movie nerds across the world? <laughs> she, do we know if they, if they have preferred pronouns, or am I just making bold assumptions? Um, I, I have no idea. Uh, well, yeah, let's just uh, use, try to use they as often as possible. You know, starting with playing the actual devil herself, the White Witch in the Narnia series. It, this is the only time I've ever encountered a white woman with dreadlocks and could tolerate them. Uh, and then Gabriel and Constantine, they, they're not just playing queer-coded villains. You know, I find that they're always kind of playing like these gender-queer-coded villains. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and that's very much their style. One of their first like big roles was Orlando, yeah, playing both the male and female role in that. Yeah, so I just wanted to give a huge shout out to my my favorite lady, uh, <laughs> Tilda Swinton, because she she made me she's they've made me question some things about myself at a young <laughs> age, uh, and and still continue to. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, all right, so. Next up, we have uh, Jareth the Goblin King. <laughs> um, I'm not going to say something can cause homosexuality. <laughs> but I am going to say that um, David Bowie's bulge in um, Labyrinth as Jareth <laughs> causes homosexuality, <laughs> um, specifically mine. Um, and pretty much, you know... If, if you encounter a millennial and they say they grew up watching Labyrinth, <laughs> they're gay. <laughs> it's Very just true. true. Very true. Labyrinth is one of those movies where, as I watch it now, it's like, how the fuck did this get made? <laughs> yeah. um, like, this, this would never fly <laughs> today. Imagine fucking parents watching Labyrinth with their children. There is no, like, moral to this story. There is, it is a whiny teenage girl who hates her little brother, so he gets kidnapped by a pedophile. <laughs> they get turned into a, gob- a, a, a codpiece-wearing pedophile. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah, set to the music of David Bowie and the, you know, some of the and creepier the puppets. And the puppets of Jim Henson. So, yeah, it's, 
Like, this is one of those things where it's like, I don't know how this happened, but uh, we need more of this. Yeah. I... Unfortunately, uh, you know, I don't see Jim Henson and David Bowie collaborating anytime soon. Maybe somewhere. No, they're doing a, they're doing a, a movie for the devil right now. <laughs> Yeah, Jareth is definitely a, an iconic queer-coded villain for sure. With all the, with all queer-coded the queer-coded and queer-making, queer-making, queer-coded, with all the the negative tropes of weird pedophilia and shit that goes along with it, but also all the fabulousness. So, like a wonderful cape and yeah, a, a beautiful ball scene <laughs> and uh, magnificent uh, songs and so on, and that package, mm-hmm. and that makeup. And that makeup, everything. Fuck. It's like, of course I'm gay. <laughs> it's, I didn't stand a chance. <laughs> and uh, last up on our list of things to talk about, Danny, if you'd like to go in a little bit into the history of this character. So this is a very, per- this, this much like uh, Jareth is a very personal uh, situation for me. And that would be the Babadook. The Babadook became an unintentional gay icon. He did not ask for this. He did not know we needed him, but we did. (laughs) Um, And this all started uh, when Netflix... So for those who have not seen The Babadook, it is a horror movie about depression and anxiety. Um, Grief, yeah. I mean, like, let's not go down the road of interpreting what this movie was about, but, like, that's what it was about. Yeah. Um, And... Um, but Netflix. it's a great, I'll just say it's a great, you know, it sounds dour when you put it that way, but it's kind of allegorical. It's not literally, well, it is literally, but it's not explicitly about those things. Um, and it's a great, really well put together, semi-independent, I think, horror movie from Australia. Yeah, um, and something I actually really love, the woman, it was, it was written by a women, woman, and she made the point that this would not become a franchise. Mm-hmm. She didn't want this to become Saw or Paranormal Activity where there's like 80 Babadook movies and <laughs> they eventually all just turn into torture porn. Like this is just a standalone fantastic horror movie which is very hard to come by. Mm-hmm. And Netflix accidentally labeled it as an LGBT film which the internet just collectively lost its mind. And mm-hmm. Absolutely. The Babadook, and this is like shortly before Pride, um, you know, the Babadook was basically everywhere that was gay that year. Um, <laughs> and what, what made this really hard for me is I was in therapy at the time, and my therapist and I started coding the Babadook as my anxieties, and like, so we could like actually talk about it. So like, what did the Babadook <laughs> tell you? What, like, and oh, so, you know, I had like come through this like psychological breakthrough, and then all of a sudden, the Babadook was. Gay. Oh, that was before the Babadook became. That a was, I, I, once this happened, I, sw- I emailed my therapist in between sessions with like an article about it, and I was like, we gotta unload about this. Because <laughs> it, it, it was just, it was too much. And now, you know, I'm glad that I have a gay monster living in my head rather than a straight monster. (laughs) um, Yeah, that's one of those things where, like, you know, there's nothing, there's no coding of the Babadook in the movie. Nothing about it says he's gay other than a Netflix accident. But we we adopted him. We took him in. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, he's, I think he's dating Pennywise is the gay canon right now. (laughs) And I'm here for that. Yeah, um, absolutely. Pennywise has a mouth. And a uh, <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, but let's not talk about Vor right now. Wow, that's that's amazing. I cannot believe that 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 was before the Babadook became a gay icon. That's hilarious. Yeah, that was it was a it was a rough pride. <laughs> I, uh, I I was not coping well. Um, all right, so I think that's all we had to touch on for the moment. So thanks for listening to We're Here, We're Queer, and We Hate Everything. And we'll see you again next time. Bye. I'm convinced that you are completely straight and normal.